I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 138. I watched the new Craft movie. It was actually good. I didn't think it was going to be that good because it looks more kiddish, I guess, because they look young. It definitely wasn't as gritty as the first one, but it was good. It kept my attention. So there's that. I finally finished Orange is the New Black. Welcome to 2013. I don't know when that ended. 19, maybe? I don't know. That's hilarious. I finished that whole season in like four hours. <laughs> because I passworded so much. I just needed to finish it, you know? Yeah. And like the whole, some of the storylines are just like, blah, I'm tired of that. Yeah. Oh, I know. Well, you know who's not behind the times? Great segue. <laughs> I mean, we are because they've been part of Patreon for a long time. We're behind on our shout outs. Mm-hmm. But uh, Patreoners! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dominique A. from California. Laura T. from Ohio. Oh, yeah. I got Laura M. from the UK. Ooh. Across the ponder. Mm-hmm. Maggie B. from Idaho. Lindsay B. from Ohio. Lindsay W. from California A. What? That's funny. Annie J. from Ohio. And Caroline R. from Wisconsin. Thank y'all so much for joining Patreon. Y'all got all the shenanigans for October, and we hope that you love all the stuff that you get every single month. So if you want an episode shout out, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. All right. The story I'm about to tell y'all was recommended by Miguel Ruiz in the Facebook group. Picture it. A family secret that was so sinister, no one was to speak of it ever again. Until Donna came along <laughs> and tells all the secrets. Right? So for more than 25 years, no word was uttered. But when Debbie Moffitt's husband, Bill, passed away in 2012, she decided that it was time she could finally break her silence. She first told her kids about everything, and they encouraged her to tell her story. So let's go back to the beginning. Debbie and Bill met in 1986, but there was a whole country between them. Debbie lived in New York, and Bill lived in California. They started talking because of their love for wrestling, and it's not like nowadays where you can just catch any broadcast you want. If Bill wanted to watch something that was limited to East Coast viewing, he would ask Debbie to record it and vice versa. Then they started to write letters, and then their friendship grew into more than a friendship. And not long after, Debbie flew out to meet Bill. So they would mail each other the VHS that they recorded? Yes. That's so cute. I know, right? Well, even more cute, she said the moment that she saw him, she knew he was her forever, and he felt the exact same way. Soon, she moved to Rancho Cucamonga, California to be with him, and they thought they would live happily ever after. But soon after the wedding, they moved in with Bill's parents. It was a different kind of living situation because they owned three houses in a row. So Bill's parents lived in the middle one. To the right, it was owned by his grandmother when she was alive, and then the house on the left was Bill's. However, he had a heart condition and had recently moved back in the middle house, staying with his parents. And then he met Debbie, all the things. But, like, he was by himself and he was kind of like, uh, if something happens, I would like someone to be there to be like, hey, need to call 911. 
Debbie didn't care about moving in with her new in-laws because she absolutely loved her mother-in-law, Lee. And since no one lived in the other houses, they rented them out. And Bill's house to the left is where everything started. A man named Danny was renting the house, and there was one rule. There was a room that Bill kept in that house that he put all of his sports memorabilia. And so Danny had the run of the house except for that room. It was off limits. And for a while, everything was great. But one afternoon, Debbie and Bill went over to check on the room and all of his stuff. And they were the only one who had a key. So they weren't really worried about it, but like better safe than sorry kind of thing. But when they opened the door, they didn't understand what they were looking at. All of the baseball bobbleheads had been taken from the shelves on the wall and placed in a large triangle on the floor. At that time, they were pretty furious because they assumed it was Danny, but he denied even ever touching the door handle. He was like, dude, that's your room. Like, I know it's off limits. I can't get in. It's all good. Like, it's not me. So they just all shook it off as a weird misunderstanding and went about their daily lives. Until another ordinary day, something unusual occurred again. Lee, the mother-in-law, woke up to find the chest that she had beside her bed that housed all of her religious statues and where she prayed every night before bed was defiled by a pair of men's boxers draped over one of the Jesus figurines. So, of course, she's upset because that was her sacred place, literally, and so she questioned everyone, but no one fessed up to it. But then there were receipts, letters, watches, and even more that would appear. And then they learned by some mail that it all belonged to Danny, their tenant. Well, they couldn't just tell him, hey, we have all this stuff, but we swear we didn't take it. Here you go. Because they're so crazy about their room in that house. But yet we have all your stuff and a pair of your boxers. Like, that seems really odd. So they would try to sneak it back into his house. Like, oh, he's out. Let's go sneak it back in. But before they could return home, which was literally next door, the items would be back in the middle house. This made them a little apprehensive. A little. Right? Mostly Bill about the stuff in his sports room. Because he was like, "Um, if this shit's coming up, like, what's happening to my room over there? Well, they checked on the room more often. One time they went over to Danny's house and there were symbols drawn in what looked like crayon on the walls, every wall above every light switch. The symbols varied from a triangle, upside down crosses, wiggly lines, and some they didn't even know how to describe. They questioned Danny and again he denied everything. But the next week he gave them a one day notice and moved out. Bill and Debbie cleaned up the house to get ready for another renter and... Bill went to his sports room. Debbie was in the living room. In that room, there was this high shelf that ran the length of the living room, and it was high enough that you would have to use a ladder. Debbie said that she remembers looking up and seeing all the knickknacks on the shelf and remarking to herself that they needed to be dusted. Well, just then, Bill entered the room and caught Debbie's attention for a second, and then when she looked back to the shelf, she gasped because everything on it had been turned backwards. Bill didn't believe her and said she must have not been paying attention earlier and they had been like that from the start or something. But Debbie said she knew what she saw. 
Another time they went to the house, there was a lamp from one of the bedrooms just sitting in the middle of the living room. And again, no one's there now. And then stuff started happening at the other house that they were renting out, which we will refer to as Dominica's house. Dominica is the grandmother's name. A little backstory about this house. When Dominica died, Bill and Lee went up to start clearing out all of her stuff, all the things, and they found some strange shit, such as broken rosary beads in the corner, some blood, different symbols on the floor, and some bird feathers. Oh, shit. Well, they cleaned it all up and decided to rent it out. But supposedly, a Santeria ritual was performed by the Guatemalan caretaker of the house in hopes of keeping Dominica alive so she could keep her job and not be kicked out of the country, thus opening a doorway to the supernatural. This is what they're gathering from, like, the shit they found and all the things. I don't know. Or shit was going down at Dominica's house and she did a little fucking spell thing, whatever, to keep it there. And then when they cleaned all the shit up, they opened it back up. Could be. Could be. And by that, I'm probably right. (laughs) Like, don't blame her. You don't fucking know. Right. Well, enter a man named Monty who rented the house. And he was a super nice man. But he asked a peculiar question. Did someone die in this house? Bill was not a fan of the supernatural at all, so he didn't want anything to do with it. But Monty pressed on, and he said that he felt like someone did, and so he had been trying to get in contact with that person with a Ouija board. Bill was like, I don't want to hear any more about this, and that was that. Monty never complained while he lived there. It was just kind of like, did someone die? And... Then he was doing his own thing with the Ouija board. So who knows what happened there. Well, since nothing threatening was happening, Debbie was kind of excited about everything. So Debbie started to ask, if anyone's here, prove it. And she said, if you left the room and re-entered it, things would be moved. Like once dining room table moved itself smack dab in the living room. And since it started to communicate this way, Bill finally came around and thought maybe it was his uncle's spirit because he died in the house. And the activity kind of quieted down, so they continued to get the houses ready to rent. Well, Dominica's house that Monty lived in and then he moved out. The new tenants were a couple, an older man named Tom and a younger woman named Michelle. They kept to themselves, but Michelle was more outgoing than Tom, and she would speak to Debbie when they were both out in their yards. Michelle began acting a little fidgety, a little strange. Like one day, Debbie noticed her hiding in the bushes, and when she went to speak to her, she could clearly see signs of abuse, like a black eye, a swollen lip. So, of course, she asked what was going on, and Michelle ended up confessing that since they had moved in the house, Tom had changed, and he had gotten mean, and Debbie offered to take Michelle to a shelter, but she refused. Over a week went by, and there was no Michelle. So finally, Debbie called Tom outside and asked him about Michelle and where she had been, and he informed Debbie that Michelle had left him. He was very matter-of-fact about it and too stern to be considered friendly, so Debbie just nodded and left well enough alone. A week after that, after a one-day notice, Tom moved out. Bill and Debbie got all their cleaning supplies ready, and they went to the rental house to clean it like they normally would to rent it out again. But when they got there, 
The house was spotless. You could smell bleach and everything. So, you know, easiest tenant ever, right? Well, two or three weeks later, they ran an ad to rent the house. And a man was knocking at that door, so Debbie approached him thinking that he was there to see about the house. But instead, he asked for Tom. And she informed him that he had moved out. And he was like, damn, does he know what happened to Michelle? Have you heard? And Debbie said no. So he went on to spill the tea that Michelle's body was found in a landfill wrapped in a rug. (gasps) So Debbie went back and talked about this with her family. And Bill was like a true crime fan, had so many newspapers and all of that. And he was like, I haven't heard anything about it. I don't know. And so they decided they really didn't know actual details. And if they took it to the police, it could just be a waste of time. And so they're like, we'll just sit on it until like you find something in the newspaper. I don't know. But one eerie thing is one of their rugs was missing. They knew one of the rugs was missing. They knew that she upped and vanished like a fart in the wind. And they didn't go to the police Mm, mm. because they wanted to wait and see if it ended up in the paper. Mm. After this, the Moffats decided to sell all three homes and move about six miles up the hill to a bigger house. They were all going to keep living together, so they needed room to spread out. One really sad thing is their pit bull German Shepherd mix dog, it was left outside overnight, and they found a carcass the next morning. And Debbie wrote a book called Unwelcomed, and she describes the situation And she said something incredibly strong had either pulled or pushed her through the four-inch gap between the bars and our wrought iron fence, leaving her body with half on either side. Oh, my God. Yeah. I could have gone a lifetime without that. Mm. The last day that they were on their property, it was just Debbie and Lee there in the room packing up some boxes. They heard this loud bang, and it sounded like it was coming from the kitchen, So they took off there and found all of the cabinet doors ripped off the cabinets, every single one. And then while they're being dumbfounded in the kitchen, they hear glass breaking in the bedroom they just left. When they returned to the bedroom, they saw that all the glass had been blown out from the inside out, like all the windows. Well, Debbie grabbed the last box and they hauled ass out of there and never looked back. Wait, they didn't get that shit fixed before the people who bought it? No one had, like, signed up to buy it yet. You know what I mean? Gotcha. But the father-in-law, he could replace all the windows and stuff. So, like, you know. Gotcha. They lived in the new house for three weeks without any incident. But then one day, a picture was turned backwards. And they all just kind of silently knew what that meant. But all acted like it was a mistake on one of their parts. But, like, oh, someone just absentmindedly turned the picture over. One day, Lee was upstairs in their bedroom that had an ensuite bathroom and had an attached sitting room that had been used as a playroom by the previous owners. So it was a pretty big, like, master suite up there. She started screaming down the stairs for Debbie, and so Debbie ran up to see what had startled her so badly, and Lee led her into the bathroom where there was a message written in soap on their mirror that said, talk to me. They looked at each other and soon the two men came up and Bill had Jamie, his and Debbie's newborn. So they were all just debating who did this because 
how could this be the entity again? It had been quiet for three weeks, but they decided that they could make sure it wasn't any of them. They would wipe it off the mirror and then all stand outside the door and then open it again and see if anything was there. And they did just that. And there it was, more writing. So they knew it wasn't them and that it wasn't human then. The writing started to be about once a day, but then it got to a point where it would be multiple times a day. Next, the triangle with the tail started to appear again. That was one of the symbols that was over all the light switches. First, it started to be like wrote on the walls and then carved into the walls. What the fuck? And then cut into their carpet. Yeah, honestly, just destroying the house. And then with the mirror messages, the entity claimed to be Lee's sister who had passed. So the mirror messages also called Lee Ninny, which is a name that only her sister and she knew about. So she's like, this, it's her. Oh my gosh, it really is her. And so the entity warned them not to go into the attic. And they, the messages said bad wire and fire. So Lee really thought it was her sister. Like, hey, she's helping us. Like, not go up there. No fire is going to start. Blah, 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 blah. But then they all got to thinking. And like, if it was really Lee's sister, it would be more like, get help. Do like, this is what's going on. Blah, 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 blah. Not just like, don't come up to the attic. Right. And so they finally got Lee to understand that it wasn't her sister. And then they stopped talking to the entity because he was trying to trick them. But then he wrote, talk or burn on the mirror. That struck enough fear in Lee to allow Debbie to find help. The first thing they did was to go see a psychologist together. Then the psychologist was like, actually, here's a parapsychologist. Like, you need to learn more about the paranormal side of this as well. Because, like, what you're saying... I can't really debunk it. Also, like, it's not just mental. Like, too many people are seeing this. Like, you have, like, Pasco, collect $200, you're out of my hair. That kind of thing. Well, then the entity wanted them to get a Ouija board, but Debbie refused. So the mirror messages continued. And once Debbie's father-in-law asked the entity's name, and when they went into the bathroom, Prince was written on the mirror. However, Debbie said that she wasn't going to call it a name that it wanted them to call it because she was afraid it would give it more power or something. One time the message said basically like, hey, I respect you. Show me some respect kind of thing. And so she was like, okay, Mr. Entity. Okay, first of all, you don't show us any fucking respect. You're literally destroying our house. Mm Mm-hmm. And threatening to burn it down. So. Yeah. Not so respectful. (laughs) Well, the name stuck, and so that's why I said he... Gotcha. Mr. Entity. The first person that they reached out to was a Catholic priest. Lee asked for him to come bless the house, and he didn't know anything that was going on. He just thought, like, okay, they just moved in. I'm going to bless the house, blah, blah, blah. Well, when the priest came through the front door, he just kind of stood there in the foyer, made the sign of the cross with holy water, and then was like... Okay, house has been blessed. Now I have to leave. Turned and like fucking left. So they were like, uh, that ain't how you do it, I don't think. You know, like, mm, okay. Well, after that, Mr. Entity started to seem more angry 
and he focused all of his negative energy on Lee. Cut up her clothes, ripped them up, and then, this is just fucking mean, he would steal one shoe in each pair. That's some fucking bullshit. Right? I'm like, no, that's just plain mean. I will say, thank God it was only, though, because I really thought you were about to say the baby, and I was like, please, no, not the baby, too. Oh, I know. He would rip off the heads and the left arm of all of Lee's religious statues. And then he started to physically assault Lee. He started to hide knives where Lee would sit or in her pillow, trying to cut her or kill her. Shit. And these knives were not from their kitchen or anything. It was completely rando knives. Some would look brand new. Some would look old as fuck. Like, they didn't know. And so at this point, they were pretty isolated because the in-laws were super religious. They didn't want anyone to think that they were crazy or possessed. And Debbie would have to be home with Lee all the time to keep her safe. Mr. Entity also showed them that wherever they went, he could and would follow. When they went out to dinner, they would often return to find the waitress's nameplate on their table or something like that. And then one time they were visiting a friend, they came home and found the man's wallet on the table. What the fuck? That's some fucking tricky slip of the wrist type of shit. Right? And so, again, he put them in awkward situations that would isolate themselves. Because you can't be like, hey, you know when we came over, your wallet just magically showed up at our house. Like, right. Okay. And then the to take the nameplate back to the restaurant? No. Yeah, the waitress thing I wouldn't have returned, but the wallet, just yeah. go throw it on their lawn or something. Right. Well, but remember they tried with Danny and it would just appear back in their house. In different interviews, Debbie said that she wasn't scared of Mr. Entity for some reason, but she was the full-time protector of Lee now. So before Lee would sit down, Debbie would have to check for sharp objects. She would have to accompany her different places. Lee was to never be alone. One time, Lee went to the pantry to get some paper towels or something while everyone was watching TV, and then they heard screaming. They hadn't even noticed her getting up, but then when they heard the screaming from the pantry, they ran to see what was going on. The door felt stuck for a second and then opened, and they could see Lee getting up off the floor, and she said that when she entered, something closed the door and turned off the light, and the next thing she knew that she was being grabbed by the throat and... Like, it was trying to choke her. And Debbie said that you could already see the bruises forming. Holy shit. Yeah. Debbie said at this point, it had gone on for nearly a year. And so she was just upset. She was exhausted. And also at this point, no one was using the upstairs anymore. Bill's parents had moved downstairs and into Bill and Debbie's master bedroom with them. Shit. Yeah, because Lee couldn't be alone. And if Debbie was with her... Nothing would, like, really harm her. That's exhausting. For yeah. for, for everyone. I mean, mm-hmm. for sure for Lee, but for everyone else involved, too. They never get a break. Yeah, and can you imagine Debbie having to be a protector of Lee, protector of everyone else, but also raise a newborn? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, terrified the whole time. That whatever it is would turn from Lee to the child. Yeah. Well, she said that she was kind of, she was tired of protecting everyone, but not, but not in the like, ugh, but just. Exhausted. Yeah, exhausted. But she didn't know what to do. So 
she said she didn't know how she got the nerve up, but she was going to have a face off with him and have a word with him. So she went into the bathroom, looked directly into the mirror, and she said, you will not harm my baby. You will not harm my husband. And you will not harm my mother-in-law. She left and returned. And then it turned its uh, powers onto the father-in-law? Uh, you forgot somebody. Well, the message said, I will not touch your child. I will not touch your husband. But Lee belongs to me. Holy shit. Yeah. But why? I'll tell you. So Debbie asked why. And Mr. Entity went into a fucking essay. She said this took like half an hour because he would fill up the mirror. She'd have to erase it, come back, do the same thing like over and over and over. So the story Mr. Entity told her that in a past life, Lee was promised to him by some monks in a 17th century French monastery as a sacrifice because they were like Satanist practicing monks or something. But the ritual didn't go down. And so Lee wasn't a sacrifice, but he said it didn't matter. And he had come now in this lifetime to collect her. He needed all those paragraphs for that. Well, it's a mirror. (laughs) I mean, write smaller, dude. Golly. (laughs) I mean, chisel down your soap a little bit. Make it thinner. I was about to say, damn, what you, like, good God, it doesn't have a quill. (laughs) Well, Debbie was like, that's not going to happen. You're not going to have Lee. And Mr. Entity got so mad that he blew out all the windows in the top floor again. Well, this was at the first time at this house. But again, remember, the last day he blew out the Mm -hmm. windows. Well, one night, an 18-inch long spear, it appeared in bed next to her mother-in-law. And it startled the father-in-law, Bill Sr. And of course, they were sleeping in the same room with Bill and Debbie. So Debbie went into the bathroom and asked what the spear was for. And Mr. Entity said that he wanted... Bill Sr. to perform a blood ritual on Lee. Of course, that wasn't going to happen. So Debbie took the spear and hid it. Debbie is a badass bitch. You hear me? Yes. She is like, something happens and she just fucking marches herself into the bathroom and says, um, excuse me, sir. Yes. What the fuck is this spear for? Yes. Get it, girl. Right? Well, later she took it to the Museum of Natural History in Los Angeles, which was like a 40-minute drive for them. And they informed her that the spear was from the Belgian Congo, over 200 years old. And by the way it was sharpened, it wasn't used for hunting or for warfare. It was used for spiritual rituals. Dun-dun-dun. Right? I mean, how does he just make all this shit appear? I don't know. I don't know. Another thing, Lee was severely allergic to aspirin. If she ingested it, it's like, Violet, you're turning violet. Like, she blew up like a fucking blueberry, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, the entity started crushing up aspirin into Lee's food. (gasps) And so she would unknowingly eat it, and then she'd start to swell. Well, Debbie recounts it one time in her book, And she said that one day her and Bill Sr. were at the grocery store. And while they were there, her father-in-law bought a chocolate layer cake from the bakery. Like, yes, please. Well, the lady at the bakery put it in a box, tied it up so it would be protected while they drove home. Well, when Lee saw the box, she commented 
how much she was looking forward to having a piece. Like, that's so me. Be like, ooh, cake. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so she opened the box to take the cake out, and it was covered in powdered, like, aspirin. Like, it had been, Jeez. like, just, like, sifted on top of it. Shit. This is the bad part of me. I'm like, it's just on the top. Just uh, skim that piece mm. off. It said it was a chocolate-layered cake. I so. could have the middle layer. <laughs> no harm, no foul. Right? Well, you know how, like, I do spoiler alert kind of shit? Like, mm-hmm. you're like, Donna, you just ruined something for someone because hmm, I forgot to do, like, a spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think people are like Carrie who just finished fucking Orange is the New Black, like, four years after it's fucking finished. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Debbie learned that she was pregnant again. Well, when she went into the bathroom, a message was written and said, congratulations, you're having twins. <gasps> and a sonogram confirmed it that she did like she had twins and she gave birth to Jeffrey and Jessica in 1990 what so how does it know right and I'm not even going into like all the shit like it would tell her and just like it told her about past live stuff but then it would tell like if someone came in because they had like a lot of people Like, they brought in a lot of investigators and all of that. And so, some people, it would recognize, but it would be like, his name might be David in this life, but he would recognize him as Henry in a different life. or You know what I mean? Like, that kind of shit. And so, he would, like, talk about that and, like, fascinating. And so, Debbie was, like, fascinated by this because, again, he's not hurting her. Mm -hmm. So, she, like, hates it, but at the same time, it's very interesting. Right. Well, one night before two shaman were supposed to come, there was this drumming sound that, like, all night. It was just, like, like you would have a ceremonial drum Mm -hmm. going. And it, like, drove everyone else bonkers. But Debbie was like, I mean, I think it's kind of funny. Like, this is the first sound that we're hearing from Mr. Entity. And it's kind of letting us know, like, he knows what's coming tomorrow. You know what I mean? And so she's, like, she's having fun with it. But everyone else is like, oh, my God, like the sound. Oh, my gosh. And like everyone's out there, the end of their rope. But I think she was just like, at this point, she was trying to find the silver lining in everything. I mean, when else are you going to find out about everybody's past life? Right? I mean, literally, the guy knows the past and the future. He does. And, you know, he, I think she did a lot of interviews But so I think she said one time he told her about someone who was going to die. And it was like, okay, cool, cool, cool. But then like later on, that person did die like two days later or maybe that same day, you know, and it was like, oh, shit. And so she went in there and said, okay, well, if you know everything, tell me the lottery numbers. Tell me the winning lottery numbers. Went out, came back in, and it said, give me Lee and I will. (gasps) And she was like, like, fuck you. Never mind. (laughs) Like, well played, sir. Well played. (laughs) But, oh. I'd be like, well, Lee's a little old, so it's cool. (laughs) (laughs) We'll bury you in a nice monument. Don't worry. Or what what are they called? Mausoleums? Meanwhile, though, that motherfucker would get and get. You know what I mean? Like, Uh he'd get his and then get. And you wouldn't Uh get the fucking numbers. Mm Mm-hmm. My luck, I would play the number. 
for four years mm-hmm. every fucking week and be like, hmm, never mind. Like, I can't waste any more money. And then the next time it would be those fucking winning numbers. Be like, motherfucker. Mm-hmm. And then there would be a message on the mirror that said, patience is a virtue because, you know, I have no patience. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, motherfucker, I still haven't learned that. <laughs> it's a costly lesson. Anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> two shaman, Red Wind and Fire Panther, they came to the house and they were trying to cleanse the house. But every time they would blow smoke into the attic to cleanse it, it would blow right back out. But, like, it would take a minute, and it wasn't just, like, whoosh, back out. It was just, like, how, you know, like, they have it with, like, a feather, like, kind of wafting up into the attic. It would kind of, like, just waft right back. Like, he's blowing it right back at him. So then they confronted him, and they wanted him to show himself in the attic, and Debbie was there. And, again, in her book, she described this. So she said, slowly... And right before my eyes, I watched as the pink insulation on the inside of one of the walls slid off and formed into a rough shape of a huge head. What? It was at least five feet tall, but only a head formed. As it became more defined, we could see that it had a very large chin, a large, strong nose, high cheekbones, and where ears should have been, a circular horn began. And it lasted for about 30 seconds and then was gone. Later on, the Moffats were told to contact this psychic, Brian Hurst. And through him, they contacted this paranormal researcher from the East Coast named Gary. And so he offered to stay with them and document some of the happenings. He came in like fucking Dybbuk douche. Prove to me what you can do. Show me what you can do. Like kind of taunting taunting you know well then a book immediately flew at his head (laughs) and so debbie wrote from that moment on until gary left the house months later the entity tormented him on the same level as he did lee this is to say unmercifully shit also while researching paranormal investigators because again this is late 80s early 90s no ask jeeves right now Why do I always go to Ask Jeeves? I guess I've really asked him a lot of fucking questions. Must have. Well, Debbie learned about Ed and Lorraine Warren. And she was able to get their telephone number. And it kind of came at this breaking point when she called the Warrens that night. They heard this loud rushing water sound. And when they looked, it was like a waterfall that cascaded down the stairs from no source. I mean, it's one thing to fuck with them, but don't. Fuck up the house. Right. Well, Debbie went to the mirror and screamed for the entity to stop the water. And like a switch, all the water stopped. And they spent the next five hours cleaning it up with mops, towels, and wet vacuums. Like, that fucking sucks. Ed and Lorraine were like, okay, we're gonna, we were coming out to California anyway. We can squeeze you in. Blah, 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 blah. Well, they deduced that this was an ancient entity, and during their visit, one night, Ed was performing the rite of provocation in their living room. Well, Debbie was like, something is going on with Bill Sr. He is acting like he wasn't a nice guy, but he was acting real, real shady. You know, like something was, something was up. Well, then he stood up, and his left arm slowly curled up towards his chest, His back began to curve forward and his head rested on his chest. So then 
like he started to walk toward Ed and dragged his right leg as he went. So again, he slowly was walking toward Ed. And so Ed raised his hands and had a small piece of wood. And he was like, you can't hurt me. This piece of wood is a holy relic and it protects me. And then the father-in-law just looked at Ed in the face and said, I will bite off your hand, chew it and that piece of wood and spit it in your face. Damn. Yeah. Then he walked all the zombie-like back to the couch, sat down and acted like nothing happened. He had no recollection of anything. But, you know, there were some incidents that Debbie saw her father-in-law go into the bathroom and talk to the entity. And then he would erase the mirror after he went in. And... One time she went in there and was like, what was he doing in here? And then, you know, left, came back, and he said, he wants me to kill Lee. What? hmm And then one other message that she saw one time when he left the bathroom or something, it said, do your own dirty work. <gasps> mm-hmm. Yeah. Then this lady who was like an occultist, Dr. Evelyn, was brought in, and she said that she believed he was one of the princes of hell. And she said, look, y'all should dedicate one room upstairs to him, and he might calm down a little bit, like kind of give him like tributes and stuff. And they were like, no, we won't dedicate anything to something that might be evil. And so she was like, I can't help you if you're not going to do that. And also, it seems like someone is permitting it to stay. Like, someone is wanting it to stay. Looking at you, senior. Yeah. So later, she supposedly did a ritual at her own place. And at that point, Bill Sr. began to, like, choke and stuff. And then, like, fell back to sleep. Like, just randomly, you know. And it was like, yep, it was him. And kind of... What his thing was is that his wife was well off, like from a well off family. And so if she died, he would get a lot of money. And he probably was like, well, this entity wants her dead too. So like he basically had a supernatural hitman. Right. Like seriously, I could talk probably four hours on all the shit that went down. But it went back and forth. Like he was never a nice man supposedly, but like, I don't know. It just went back and forth and he, he had to move out of that downstairs master room. Well, then he said that the spirit tried to kill him. And so he moved back in and then Lee was like, you have to leave. Like you have to go get help. And so he went into like a mental hospital for like a week. Again, it was just like so much. Well, then he was like, Lee actually needs to be in here too. Kind of thing. And she was like, fuck this. Like, fuck you. You're trying to make me look crazy. And it's like, you're the one who's trying to kill me with this thing. And so she was like, you have to get out. And so he did. And he ended up passing away in 2007. And then Lee passed away from congestive heart failure in 2010. Well, since Lee was like, nope, Bill Sr. can't be here. She did allow that Gary guy to come back who was like, show me what you can do. And had the book hit him. Because he was, like, down on his luck. He had been fired from his job. And so she was like, no, you can come help because, like, shit's still going on. It's not as bad because Debbie started really talking to the entity. And that's when he would tell her about all of this stuff. And so it's like he used his energy 
to tell her these stories. And so he couldn't, like, do a lot of shit to Lee because he was telling her these whole fucking essays. Well, so Gary came and again, his clothes were destroyed. His shoes were hidden. All the things. It came to a point where she was like, you know what? Bill Sr.'s gone. Like, that's a real-life monster that's not trying to kill Lee anymore. And we need Mr. Entity out of our lives. Like, this cannot keep going on. And now my kids are getting older. Like, I don't need this in their lives. You know, all of that. And so, at this point, he had been in her life over five years. Shit. She went into the bathroom and she told him, like, look, you're not welcome here anymore. You have to go. And... When she left, came back, it said, I do not want to go. Well, Gary told them, like, kind of as a thank you to them, but also he thought the entity might change his life for the better since he was so down and out. And the entity did know, like, future stuff and all of that. He was like, let him leave with me and be with me and, like, let's see what happens. So he... Proposed that to Mr. Entity. And so he left and Debbie went back in and Mr. Entity said, I will not work with an inferior being. I will defeat him if I must. Holy shit. Yeah. But Gary was like, we good. Like, we still going to do this. Oh, Gary. Right. And so Debbie was like, no, you have to leave. You know, like, this is it. You're getting a chance to leave with someone So, like, you better go now before, because you don't have that negative energy to feed on of Bill Sr. So, like, you better go now before we get other people in here and then you're not going where you want to go. And so Gary left for the airport and Debbie went into the bathroom and on the mirror had, goodbye, my family. (gasps) And she said that she said aloud, Goodbye, Mr. Entity. And that was the last time she ever spoke to him. So, altogether, the family was tortured between 1987 to 1992. Well, why couldn't he have just hung out with them? I know, right? Like, it's like... But if it was your family, be nice. I know. I mean, like, families are nice, but you get the point. exactly. What the fuck happened to Gary? Well, supposedly he's fine, but... Debbie said that she doesn't believe he stayed with Gary because he was like, he's an inferior being, whatever. So he just used him like kind of get away and to latch on to someone else. Also, during the interviews, uh, Debbie said that she believes Mr. Entity could not physically kill Lee. And that's why he needed someone else to do it. Maybe he could influence someone to do it, have her die by suicide like, drive her to that point, but not by him because he wasn't on this plane. And so that's why he wanted the blood ritual and all of that to get on this plane. But he wasn't there, so it was kind of like he still needed permission. He still needed all of these rules, you know. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I don't know what it is, but it seemed like he had rules that he couldn't break. And that's why she survived. Right, because he would just, like put the knife there or put the spear there or something like that. Yeah. Like, couldn't actually hurt her. Yeah. And Debbie said that, like, they have pictures, like, she includes in her book and stuff, but she said that they had so many pictures and everything, like, daily she kept a log of what happened, but 
some of these experts would come and be like, destroy this, like stop doing this because that's keeping the demon here, like all of that. And so she was like, oh shit, I didn't even think about that. Like it's given him power. Okay. And like burned everything. So there goes all of that shit. And she's like, if we would have ignored them and we kept everything, we might have had an answer by now of what, mm-hmm. what this is because it's not a poltergeist. Because it kind of sounds like it would be one, but usually that's with like adolescents in the house and it would be more like throwing objects and all of that. This was a little different and the whole writing on the mm-hmm. mirror. But on one of the podcasts I listened to, I think it's Paranormal Almanac. They were talking with Debbie. They were actually in the house talking with her because and they're like, no, it's completely fine. Like, it doesn't feel like, oh, my gosh, like, there's some ghost in this house. There's some ghost in this (laughs) house. Like, no. But they were talking about the symbols that triangle with the squiggly, like, little kite tail, basically. And one of his friends said that it's, it's something with, like, teleportation with gins, which I need to do a whole episode on them. But, like... They're ancient, and you would know it from uh, Ghost in the Birds. Mm. Um, <laughs> but if you think about it, he had all of those symbols in that house, and then some in their house. So it's like that's how he transported those objects to their house. Mm. And then, like, he had scratched in, like, the symbols on their cars and stuff, too. So it's like that's how he transported it from the restaurant and you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like when you're thinking about this kind of thing. And so like some of the behavior is gen like where they could be your best friend or they could be your worst enemy and want to destroy you. Like it's extreme either way. Basically, Mr. Monster was a Sour Patch kid. Mm, Basically he's you. (laughs) But yeah, that is the story of the Moffat haunting. And they don't know, no one can debunk it. Everyone who has like been a part of it, all of that, they're like, I, I don't know. Like, we can't help you get rid of it. Good luck. You know, that kind of thing. Like, I don't know. But now it's gone. And so you're just looking at old information, trying to put things together. Do you believe it? I do. I do. Like, I mean, unless she's, like, just really good, her story never changes. And I listened to a lot of fucking interviews. And, like, it was pretty, it wasn't verbatim each time. But it was like, no, I mean, the timeline was right. You know, like, sometimes she would add in something, you know, like, so that's how I was listening to other things because, People were asking different questions. Well, and you, you know. remember different things every time yeah. you talk. But it lined up. And, like, everyone that I was, like, going on their websites and stuff, they're like, I can't debunk it. And, you know, like, get, I don't know. So the question is, do you believe it? Kind of. I don't know. I really, I do believe it. I don't know why I do, but I do. Maybe it's your presentation of it. <laughs> Question is, will you believe my story? Uh, yes, because there's facts. 
But if it's like some of the things, we'll disagree on it. Maybe. My story this week is one that I feel like I probably should have heard of, but I don't remember it. (laughs) That doesn't mean anything. True. But there is a Jack Black movie called Bernie about this story. I haven't seen that, so yeah. yeah. It it came out in 2011. I know. How have we not heard of that? Yeah, I'm trying to think. Like, no, never heard of it. Well, the story revolves around two people, Bernie Tita and Marjorie Nugent. So we'll start with a little bit of Bernie's background, and then we'll go into how his life and Marjorie's life intersect. Bernie was born in Tyler, Texas. He was born August 2nd, 1958. His father was from Russia, but moved to the U.S. in 1926, and he was a professor of music, very musically inclined, and worked at a bunch of different universities. He met and married Bernie's mom, and just a year after Bernie was born, his mom died in a car accident in which his dad was driving. Oh, gosh. So it was something that his dad never got over. His dad turned to alcohol to self-medicate. Eventually, his dad remarried, and when Bernie was 15 years old, his dad had been ill for a while, and his dad passed away, too. Good gosh. Yes. Well, he ended up living with his stepmother. This sounds like Cinderella. Shit, it does. (laughs) So he lived with his stepmother and his half-sister. Again, Cinderella. (laughs) They didn't have a lot of money, so Bernie started doing yard work for people and ended up getting a job at the local funeral home. At this time, he and his family were living in Abilene, Texas. Bernie really enjoyed working at the funeral home. He felt like it was his calling to help people. He just had this special way about him that everybody connected to and felt comfortable, and it was just his niche. Well, and he had endured two significant losses. That really gave him a chance to bond with people in that way. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, as terrible as it is that Patty Joe passed, like, it really is something that's, I feel like, with you, it's given you such a connection to people who listen to the podcast, like, in a way that I can't connect, you know? And they find solace, I guess if that's the word, and comfort hearing what you've been through and your emotions so they don't feel alone. And I think that's what people found in Bernie. So he was actually pretty popular in high school. He would, on Friday nights, sneak the hearse out of the funeral home and, like, drive the kids around Abilene. So, again, he was just this fun-loving guy that got along with everybody, made everybody feel welcome, yada, yada, yada. You know, all the things that, like, a 48 hours would never say about me. (laughs) Okay, after high school, he went to McNeese State University. That's in Lake Charles. So, shout out to all of our Lake Charles listeners, because I know there's a few. And he worked at a funeral home around there. When he was at McNeese, he went to school to get his associate's degree in mortuary science. In 1985, he moved to Carthage, Texas, which is kind of close to the border, not that far from Lake Charles. And he got a job at the local funeral home, Hawthorne Funeral Home. He had himself a little apartment behind the funeral home, Carthage is a very small town. It's a wealthy town. Like, back in the 
40s and 50s, it was one of the richest towns because of the oil and gas industry. So there was a lot of wealthy people in the town. It was a small town, I think like only about 6,000 residents. So everybody kind of knew everybody. And Bernie was making a name for himself. Bernie was involved in the local Methodist church. He did the choir. And then sometimes if the preacher was out, he would preach, teach Sunday school, you know, all the things. But he got his musical background because both of his parents were musically inclined. And remember, his dad was a music professor. And so he was very musically inclined. And he would also sing at a lot of the people's funerals, too. Bernie is a jack of all trades. Right? Like, literally a one-stop shop. <laughs> That's the truth. He will d- give the eulogy and preach at your funeral. He will sing at your funeral. And he will lower your ass into the ground. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my gosh. He was very generous, too. He would always try to help people when they couldn't make payments on stuff. You know, Cindy Lou down the street couldn't make her car payment that month, and she was about to get it repossessed. He'd help her, you know. There was this one lady in town. Her name was Gracie Duke. She was a widow. She had what I would assume was arthritis because they say that she just had aches in her bones. And he felt so sorry for her and all of her pain that he took her to Hot Springs, Arkansas, so she could sit in the baths. So, like, he was just so generous. He was described as, this is not Texas, well, the South, but he was described as peachy and sweet. Oh, gosh. Also, what 48 hours would not say about you. (laughs) I think that's the Texas way of saying he's gay, honey. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, no, they wouldn't say that about me. No. Oh, God. That's hilarious. I would be that person that did not understand that. When you think of a conservative Texas small town, you think, oh, poor Bernie. You know, you don't think, but he was so accepted in that town. You know, nobody, at least they didn't say they did, had a problem with him being gay, which, I mean, hello, duh, that's how it should be. But I'm talking a conservative town, you get the drill. Because he was peachy and sweet, duh. Right, right. (laughs) He's like, do you want me to sing at your funeral? If not, keep acting that way. If you want me to sing, then accept me. If not, I'll dance on your grave. (laughs) After about five years living in Carthage, it was 1990, he was in charge of the funeral of Rod Nugent. Sound familiar? That was Marjorie's husband. Rod had died just from old age. He was very wealthy. Like, back then, worth between five to ten million. And that was in 1990, so that's a, I don't know, shit ton now. He was an electrical engineer, and after he and Marjorie married, he took a job with Magnolia Oil, which later became Mobile Oil. Oh, shit. Yeah, like money. Yeah. They moved around like Louisiana, New Mexico, obviously Texas, but eventually when he retired in 1989, Marjorie was like, I want to go back to Carthage because she was born in 1915 and lived there like her whole life. So, I mean, we're talking at that point, like 74 years. I mean, obviously she moved around when they got married and all, but like she wanted to go back home. So he was like, 
Okay, we'll move back. He bought controlling interest in the First National Bank of Carthage. So not only was he getting his retirement and all from the oil company, he was getting money because, again, he had controlling interest in the fucking bank. So it was like money was coming in. It wasn't just like, oh, here's our retirement money, and we got a little off that. No, they were like making money still. They built this 6,000-square-foot stone home right on the edge of town. Like, it had electronic gates, all the shit. 6,000 square feet? They old, but they got hover-rounds to get around? Fucking segues of some shit. I feel like even before Rod died, Marjorie just wasn't that pleasant. You know what? I picture, well, me as an old lady, but... <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but my eyes did. I yeah, was your like, eyes did. I saw mm-hmm. your fucking face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. Picture Weeza from Still oh, Magnolia. Again, that's who Carrie relates to and says she is. Yeah. And Donna's fucking Clary and pushes all mm-hmm. my goddamn buttons. Mm-hmm. Like, if you ever really want to understand mine and Donna's relationship... Fucking just watch Still Magnolias. And w- I'm Weeza and she's Clary. And that part where they're on that fucking bench <laughs> is everything. It's pretty classic. And it's pretty much our friendship in a scene in a movie. Yes. Well, Marjorie didn't really leave the estate very often. I mean, fuck, she's probably spending her whole time cleaning. But she didn't leave the estate. Ver- okay, I know. They had cleaning people. Okay. I'll- but I'm just saying because it's a, f- a huge fucking house. Mm-hmm. Well, they probably had a fucking grocery store in one corner of it. Mm-hmm. But like I said, even when she did get out, she didn't have a good reputation. One of her sisters lived in town, and she just refused to speak to her. She didn't get along with her son. Her son moved to Amarillo and was a pathologist, and they hadn't spoken in years. People in town said if she held her nose any higher, she would drown in a rainstorm. She was basically the antithesis of Bernie. But Bernie was in charge of Rod's funeral, and he gave it his all, just as he would for anybody. But Bernie did, again, what he did for everyone, and after the funeral, would stop by and visit Marjorie, just to see if she was okay. Just to check in, do you need anything, how are you doing, you know, yada, yada, yada. Well, after Bernie started doing those random visits just to check in on her, they actually became friends they would go on dinner dates every so often just to hang out spend time together get her out of the house and she bought him a twelve thousand dollar rolex okay i would be nice to her too then right sugar mama alert they started spending more and more and more time together so bernie actually went part-time at the funeral home to spend more time with marjorie because they traveled i mean they went all over the world together i mean like literally all over the fucking world together germany scotland egypt like all the places and she gave him everything that he needed i need to know what vitamins this lady took i need to know all of her shit because she's traveling and she's like 85 yes Mm mm-hmm Like, what the hell? Yeah. Well, she gave him cars, clothes, flying lessons. Some things even said planes. Yeah. Planes, trains, and automobiles? Literally. She even told the bank to accept checks from her account that Bernie signed. So, he basically had free reign with her money. But he put it to good use, too. You know how I told you he was so 
philanthropic. He gave a ton of money to local charities. He set up scholarships for people. He even bought, I think it was five cars for people in town who didn't have cars and needed them. But he did this with her permission, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. She was like, yeah, okay. she was like. I was just making sure, like, that's nice and all, but. um, Yeah, no, she she told the bank, like, when he signs a check, you take it. No, I know. But, like, did she know he was doing it? Yeah, she said, you have free reign with my money. She was estranged from her son. That was the only kid she had. Her husband was dead. She's got, let's just make up a number between what they say that she's worth, $8 million with money steadily coming in. She's not hurting for money. Eventually, he quit his job completely and was with Marjorie full-time. He was her everything. He was basically her assistant, but also her caregiver, but also her friend. What's that Nicolas Cage movie? Um, God, Guarding Tess. That's what, that's what that reminds me of. It's like Driving Miss Daisy, all that stuff. Well, rumors actually started to fly around town. Because Bernie and Marjorie went on a cruise, and the people of the town found out that they shared a cabin. But he's peachy and sweet. Uh-huh. Well, the rumors are, is he using her for her money? Like, is he pretending like he's in love with her? Do they have a romantic relationship? What the what is going on? Because they were even seen around town, like, holding hands. But if she sees him as a son, I... Oh, no, I held hands with my mama all the time. Yes, and she's 80 fucking five. She probably needs a hand to hold. True. I mean, he would even say, like, she's fucking wobbly. Like, I'm holding her hand so she don't fall. Okay, so one article I found actually said that the royalties that she was getting from the oil and gas alone was between two hundred dollars and $300,000 a year. Holy crap. So, I mean, I guess he could... In theory, blow through her money, but uh, he ain't blowing through her money. You know what I mean? It's said that Marjorie was very possessive of Bernie, though. Like, almost treated him as if he was her servant. Well, he was on her payroll, basically. Yeah. But the thing is, too, is like, he wasn't just getting stuff for him. He was able to do the charitable things that he wanted to do. That he's always done, but now had funds to do it. I mean, he was making like $18,000 a year at the funeral home. And now he's got an endless supply of money, basically. He ended up buying himself a two-bedroom house just a mile from her house. Well, just three short years after they started their time together and after her husband had passed, Marjorie changed her will to leave everything to Bernie. So her son and her grandchildren were not getting a dime. Damn. Uh-huh. But Bernie was, well, earning it. He basically waited on her hand and foot. He told his sister that he believed Marjorie was developing dementia. She fired the gardener because the flowers didn't bloom. But the thing is, is that they weren't supposed to bloom right then. Another thing that they would do is she would sit on the porch and watch as Bernie shot armadillos in the yard because they were rooting up the yard. Do armadillos root up your yard? Well, I don't fucking know. I know, like, moles do. Yeah. 
I don't know. Armadillos are gross. So fucking gross. And I bet that that... Okay, I don't know. We God. can't talk about it. I no. Can't, no, I can't. Oh my God, they're Ugh, so, so gross. ugly. It was getting to where Marjorie was so needy that if he was away from the house, like, just for a little bit, she would freak out and would page him over and over and over again. Like, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Why aren't you home yet? Why aren't you home yet? Why aren't you home yet? You know, that kind of thing. Bernie was getting tired of all of her requests, all the, you know, he has to be home for, and I say home, but like to her house by 1145 for lunch. And if he's not there on time, she's freaking out. Where is he? Where is he? You know, but he doesn't leave because he's literally her only friend. And at this point, he's pretty invested. I mean, he's got the will. He's making way more money than he would at the funeral home. All the things. He's not going anywhere. Well, Thanksgiving of 1996, Bernie goes to see his sister. And his sister is like, how in the fuck did you get away for Thanksgiving? And he is like, thank God she has a sister in Ohio. And she went to visit her for Thanksgiving. Well, around Christmas time, he decorates the house and all. But Marjorie was still in Ohio with her sister for the holidays. No, she wasn't. <laughs> oh, shit. Bernie. Well, then in the spring, Marjorie wasn't accepting visitors because she was sick. And then in the late spring, he told people that she was at a nursing home because she'd had a stroke. When some of the people that she was, again, she didn't really have friends, but she had acquaintances that would talk, you know. And when people would be like, well, she's not answering messages. And he, he would talk about that she had Alzheimer's now and, you know, she just couldn't. She just couldn't. Well, July of 1997, the Carthage Sheriff's Department gets a call from an anonymous woman. And they say, look. We haven't seen Marjorie in a long time. I don't know why, but the sheriff's department does nothing with this information. It wasn't until a month later that they talked to Bernie, and Bernie says, no, no, no. She's at a hospital in Temple, but she's not registered under her name. She's using a false name because she doesn't want people to know that she's there. So the deputies reach out to the hospital, and they're like, mm, nope. Mm -mm -mm. literally no one here matching that description nope bernie you can't give places like that people can fact check right golly well they call her son and again they had been out of touch for a long time but he and his oldest daughter came to the house and when they're there his daughter notices that there's a freezer in the garage that has been taped shut. What the fuck, Bernie? Dumb. What the fuck? So they're like, what the fuck? That's suspect. So they open the freezer and they move some of the food around. And there was Marjorie wrapped in a sheet. Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Remember, Carthage is a small town. And the deputies were like, Look, we ain't fucking this up. So they put the freezer on the back of a pickup truck and hooked it into a gas-powered generator and drove it all the way to Dallas for an autopsy. 
turned on so that no evidence was going to be destroyed in the traveling for the autopsy. So now the sheriffs are like, where the fuck is Bernie? Well, they find him. He's down with the local Little League team heading to take them and their families to dinner. I don't know if he was the coach. I don't know if he was just the sponsor. I don't know. Were they going to Pizza Hut, though? Because, I mean, that seems like it would be the thing. You with the insignificant details. Okay. So, when the sheriffs got there, he was, like, pretty surprised. Like, I mean, fuck, it's been, like, eight months, you know? And he pretty much immediately broke down. He said that on November 19th, he had basically just had enough. He didn't even really remember what happened. But he got the gun that she had bought him to shoot the armadillos and shot her in the back four times. Oh my gosh. The first bullet hit her in her back and paralyzed her instantly, and she fell to the concrete. Then he walked up to her, laying on the ground, and shot her three more times. He was arrested on a $1.5 million bond, and the town folk were so pissed, not at Bernie, at the DA for arresting him, that they started raising money to bond him out. The DA had to put an additional charge of theft on it to get the bond to $2.7 million so that the town people couldn't bond him out. Every single Sunday, they would have these huge public prayers for Bernie. The DA is like, y'all, Bernie's a con man. And the town's like, but he's so nice. Well, who's going to sing at my funeral now? Like, like, that was a legitimate question that people asked. Who's going to sing at my funeral now that Bernie's arrested? The town people hired a defense attorney whose nickname was Scrappy. But the defense attorney literally said, Bernie's an ox in a ditch. Meaning, there's no fucking way he's getting out of this. He's, he's a goner. Bernie told his sister that really nothing happened that day in particular that made him kill her he just started thinking about having to basically live with her for the rest of her life and he was like i just couldn't take it i realized i could not stand it another day hey here's an idea just walk the fuck away but see he says he couldn't because he was her only friend and then and then he killed her exactly okay and then people are like well why didn't you get rid of the body and he says because he wanted to give her a proper burial you know, this is his quote. You know, everyone deserves a proper burial. How are you going to explain the four fucking bullet holes and give her a proper burial? It had been eight fucking months. Clearly, that was not on your agenda. Well, even though he confessed, there was a trial in 1999, and the DA actually requested a change of venue. I mean, good on you, because that town was just, like, enamored by him, and it was like he could do no wrong. I mean, he killed this woman and they're like no it's okay she was an asshole that i mean literally that's how they acted well it took the jury 90 minutes to convict him and they sentenced him to life in prison but that wasn't the end of it in 2011 after the movie bernie came out a defense attorney named jody cole came to bernie and was like how could you 
like, I don't, I can't, I can't process this. How could you do this? The more she investigated, she started finding books about childhood sexual abuse and coping. And Bernie ended up telling her that he was sexually assaulted by his uncle from like the ages 12 to basically to 18. She filed a motion for new sentencing because she had a forensic psychiatrist basically say that he had psychological disassociative experience because of the sexual trauma from when he was a kid and the way that Marjorie treated him. He had like a disassociative experience and that's when he killed her because basically, and the DA said this too, like had I known that I wouldn't have gone for first degree murder because it wouldn't have been premeditated. It would have been like a sudden passion versus premeditation. And so, you know, again, that's the difference between 20 years and life. So in 2014, the original sentence was, I guess you'd say vacated. And he got out on bond, like was out of prison for a little while. When it went back to trial, the original DA recused himself and that trial lasted three weeks, had 80 witnesses. It showed that he had taken over $3 million from Marjorie. Not only like had he taken it, it showed how he would make, so, okay, he would like give people stuff, loan people money and tell Marjorie they're going to pay it back, which they never did. And he would make fake deposit slips showing money going into the account that was never going into the account. So they were like, okay, um, you are just spending her money. You are taking from her. Yeah, she gave you, put you in the will, and she gave you the ability to do, to use her checkbook. But clearly there was something fraudulent going on if you're faking deposit slips. Like, some sort of fraud's happening. Basically, the last kind of star witness for the prosecution was a psychiatrist that said, yes, basically, he was sexually abused as a child, but the relationship with Marjorie, quote, didn't resemble domestic violence. And that he showed signs of narcissism, antisocial personality, and that it was basically what they call a cumulative intolerance for Marjorie that led him to kill her. This time, the jury deliberated for four hours And they came back with a guilty plea, and he is serving a life sentence. He will be eligible for parole in 2029. I'm so torn on this, because I don't think he's a con man. Oh, he 100 is a con man. Really? Yes. If if they just had a friendship, because I don't think they had a romantic relationship. I don't think it was that at all. But if they just had a friendship and... You know, he used her money to live on. Okay, she was like, here, I'm going to buy you a house, I'm buy you a car. You have this much money a year. You can do all the philanthropic things that you want to do. Spend it how you will. I don't care. But he just went crazy with it, you know? And, and now I don't know what I would do if anybody was like, here's $10 million. I don't fucking know what I'd do. But the fact that stuff like the deposit slips and all that, there were, I, I, I know there was more, but... That's fraudulent. Like, that's showing that he lied to her about something, and he's trying to show documentation to support his lie. That's fraudulent. And there was some stuff with the IRS. Like, he owed the IRS money 
like four grand or something like that. Like there was there was icky things happening with money. Okay, but on the deposit slip stuff, that's why I was asking you earlier if she knew he was doing the the stuff for other people mm-hmm. because if she did, like okay, but then if she thought okay, he's gonna like. All right, you can give them the money, but they have to pay me back because she's a like grumpy person. I, well, I mean, I'm just it's also her fucking heart. You know what I mean? No, I'm just saying. So if he is that person and he's like, okay, 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 like I'm going to give it to him, but it's John Q and his son's sick and he has to do it and he can't pay it back. Well, I'm going to do this deposit slip because she has all the money. She doesn't need it, but they, you know what I mean? Like that. But it's her, that doesn't fucking matter. It's I know, her money. I, but I'm saying, like, I feel like, mm, I don't know. But it, but it doesn't matter because it's her money. And if she said, okay, but I want him to pay him back. And he's like, okay. And then has his fucking fingers crossed behind his back like fucking Veruca Salt doesn't count. I don't know. We always on the wrong side. <laughs> no. I'm on the right side. <laughs> you on the wrong. Like, we've had a poll before. And you on the wrong side. Well, I was on the right side because the law agreed with me, motherfucker. That jury. no i he deserves to be in jail because yeah i mean he fucking killed her it doesn't matter bernie um you had all the money in the world to do some fucking research and not shoot her in the fucking back she old as fuck like he literally could have been like she's fallen and she can't get up and i came over and she was dead yeah like she's fucking old as fuck Uh uh-huh and he's going to shoot her in the back three times. Four. Four. Yeah, four. Like, what the fuck? You dumb. And then keep her in a freezer? You really dumb. Then tape the freezer? That's not inconspicuous at all. I don't know. Yes, all that is dumb. But he definitely deserves where he is. Yes. Because I don't give a fuck if you think if he was fraudulent or not. If you think he's the sweetest man ever. And he's the best singer of all singers at the fucking funeral <laughs> and the local Methodist church. I don't give a goddamn. <laughs> he fucking shot her in her back four times. Shot her. She fell because she was instantly paralyzed and walked up to her and shot her three more times. Just to kind of paint a picture, too. She ended up having a proper burial like he wanted for her which he was never going to do. Her granddaughter sang at her funeral. And this local lady, who was an older lady, who Bernie was supposed to sing at her funeral. Because, you know, I mean, I don't know if that's a thing everywhere else. But, like, around here, people go ahead and plan their funerals. Like, my parents' funeral is basically planned and they're, like, already paying for it. You know, we just have to go, like, pay for the digging of the grave and putting the date on the headstone you know it, everything else is taken care of that's a that's a thing down here unless you're getting cremated which i totally am so it's not weird to me that people have him like set up to sing what's weird though is that one of the town people when they found out that her granddaughter sang at her funeral asked how well she sang because since bernie couldn't sing at her funeral would the granddaughter sing but i get caught up on the weird detail I just feel like I don't care how mean someone is. No one, no one fucking deserves that. And it's like the townspeople have 
forgotten she's a fucking human and she was murdered. I don't give a shit how mean she was or how nice Bernie is. He murdered her in cold fucking blood for money. Period. If it wasn't for money, he'd have left a long time ago. But he didn't want to leave her money. Money is the root of all evil, Carrie. So that's all I got. It's said that the... I'm going to be honest. I never watched the movie Bernie. Oddly enough, Shirley MacLaine played Marjorie, which is so funny. I literally just put two and two together. And that she also played Weeza in Still Magnolia. That's so bizarre. If the shoe fits. If the typecasting fits. Yeah. Look, Carrie is very upset about this because she sees herself in Marjorie a lot. Yeah, and I don't deserve to fucking die. (laughs) But the movie took creative licensing with how Bernie was treated. Like, it definitely, it's, it's said, made it seem like it was way worse on him than it actually was. Who said that? Well, I don't know who said it. Because, like, again, she didn't have a lot of friends. Who was it? The gardener that she fired? Could be fucking logical. <laughs> well, it's not like she had, like, absolutely zero fucking friends. I mean, she had people that called her, people that were checking in, people that were like, hey, where is she? Well, those aren't always friends, and she might have paid them, too. Well, if they did, they would still have known how she treated him. Not really, because they don't know the whole story. You know, they she probably treated them the same way. No, because... Like, they're not the same. It's not the same. They're on the outside. It's like my dad. Every time y'all would be there, he'd be like, oh, good, 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 good. And y'all leaving, he'd be like, Rrr. I mean, you're right. You never know what goes on behind closed doors. But I feel like they were there behind the closed doors sometimes. I'm not saying, again, she did not deserve to die. Like, that, no. But. Because she's not, she didn't have him chained up. You know what I mean? Like, he could have left. Like, that's the whole thing. Like, you're an adult. You could leave. Well, we're not victim blaming. If he really was abused by her, we don't fucking know. This is purely conjecture. But again, if he was abused, we don't fucking know. And we're not victim blaming. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. In his head, he I don't think he had a plan. But I think he had, in his head, a plan to make a plan. Yeah. If that makes any yeah. sense. Like, he was trying to buy time. But I don't know... What he thought he was going to do with the body that was fucking, had four bullet holes in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, again, that might be why he did it in the back, because he was thinking her laying in a casket. But he didn't work there anymore. He wasn't going to be the one that was going to be able to embalm her. Uh, true. And if she died in the house, he would still have to call police. Like, yeah. Like, he would still have to call someone. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why he shot her. So it had to really be... A crime of passion. Like, it mm-hmm. had to really be like, I've had enough. It's over. Yeah. Well, I feel like this is, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. Because he wanted the means to help people and all of that. But then, of course, he got greedy. Mm-hmm. But, like, he got all of this. But he, in turn, had to deal with, allegedly, someone who was very abusive. Blah, 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 blah. She... Wanted some, you know, and then in turn... uh She wanted a companion. Yeah, and in turn got a murderer. You know, and it's just like, you'd never know what's going to happen. And, oh, that that is sad. You know, both of our stories had deceit of a loved one. Yeah, it really did. I guess I should say from a loved one. Yeah. Just, uh, what's the saying? Shows to go, yeah. 
You never really know people. Very true. Well, we want to know what y'all think. What was that Mr. Entity? Because I got to know. Right? I'm so glad she spilled the beans. We'd never fucking know that story. I know. Thank y'all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.